without apologies, I'm going to tell you the message this week is very similar to the message two weeks ago. God is faithful. We are not. But he's still going to get his work done. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah tell that story. And in fact, as I mentioned, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah fit together. And in the Hebrew text, they're all one book. So they're telling one story. And it's a story of God's faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Um, There are a couple of building projects that take place in Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra, we find that they rebuild the temple. What we're going to see today in Nehemiah is that there's going to be another building project to rebuild the walls of the city. But the most important thing in both Ezra and Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the community and the, the, the alignment, the realignment, and then the need to realign again the people's heart with the work of the Lord. Um, as I've mentioned before, there's kind of two sections of history as you move through the Old Testament. There's what's called the Deuteronomistic history. Um, it, it is told in a little bit more of a critical perspective because what, they're, what the, the authors are doing is they're saying, um, here's the book of Deuteronomy that you agreed to, but you failed on your side of the covenant, and so you're being disciplined. So it really does have a perspective that is much more clear and almost cause-effect. You're getting what you deserve. Then the stories are going to be told again, which we call the chronicler's history, and that's what we're looking at now. And this is much more focused, yes, on their failure, but it's focused on the faithfulness of God to continue to accomplish his purpose. And that's what we're seeing in this section that we're going through now. First and second Chronicles, Ezra that we've already seen, Nehemiah today and Esther next week. That's God's faithfulness in all of that. As we get to Nehemiah, we're really halfway through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. What's happened in Ezra is um, Zerubbabel has come back with a huge group of people and rebuilt the temple. Ezra then comes back, and Ezra leads a revival and realigns the people with the purposes of God. Now in Nehemiah, halfway through this twofold book, in Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah is going to find out that there's a problem and he wants to fix it. So here's the situation we read in Nehemiah chapter 1. This is the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. This is his message. In the month of Kislev, this is November, December, so wintertime, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah and some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Remember, uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra have led people back. Um, but Nehemiah is still back in the, in the citadel. He's still back in one of the palaces of the Persian Empire. Some men come back to visit, and he asks them, how are things going back in Jerusalem with all those people who've returned from the exile? How are things going? Here's the answer. They said to me, those who have survived the the exile and are back in the province are in great distress. And I'm highlighting the words there, um, hagadol harah. Um, the, the second word, rah, harah, it's, it's a word that means evil, and, and um, it's a harsh, harsh word for um, damaging situations. When, when you have this word, there's something really oppressive and abusive going on, okay? Um, it, it is, uh, uh, it's not just, oh, it's difficult. Hagadol um, harah, it, it is great pain and anguish that they are in, and reproach. Their their reputation is in danger. Um, The people who are back there are having a very, very hard time. 
The others around them are ridiculing them. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. The report is this. The people, they're being oppressed. They're, they're being uh, ridiculed. And the walls are broken down. And this is probably why um, they're being oppressed because the walls are not um, in place so that they can be protected from the others who are trying to take over and who are trying to dominate them. And because their walls are broken down, um, they're being ridiculed. Your God's not strong enough to protect you. Now, um, Nehemiah's response is pretty impressive. In the month of Nisan, now this is spring, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought uh, for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. This is, this is Nehemiah's job. He's the cupbearer to the king. He's the guy who tastes all of his food, drinks his wine before the king does, and the king kind of watches and makes sure nothing happens to him. Now, in all likelihood, um, Nehemiah is kind of in the kitchen days beforehand, making sure all of the things are prepared. But specifically, um, when a drink is given to him, there's the opportunity for poison. And so Nehemiah drinks it, and the king kind of waits and sees, makes sure he doesn't kill over, um, and, and then he can drink it himself. So this is a guy who's got to be trusted. If you're, testing, if you're trusting him to make sure that no one's poisoning you, you want a guy who you can trust in that position. And Nehemiah is that guy. He said, I had not been sad. This is our word again, rah. I had not been in anguish. I had not been in a really bad situation in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look rah? I look at you and there's something wrong. I can see the anguish and the distress on your face. And you're not ill. Okay, put this together. Um, I know you're not sick because you're standing there and you haven't been in a problem, but now there's something going on on your face. What's, what's wrong? <laughs> Why are you in anguish? And, and I, I don't know for sure, but I'm wondering if the king is going, is something up that, <laughs> that's in your mind? You're not ill, but maybe you've got a plan going here. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. What's, what, there's, you're not ill, but something else is going on, and you're oppressed, and it's, and it's in your heart. I was very much afraid, because the king is thinking, okay, he's not dying, but maybe there's a plot, and, and, and he's, I was afraid of, of what his reaction was going to be. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Listen, I, I'm, I still want you to live forever. Why should my face not look oppressed, raw, evil, damaged, when the city where my ancestors are buried, are buried, um, are um, buried, the city where my ancestors are lies buried in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. I've gotten this report, and it is crushing my heart that the situation is that bad. The king's response is pretty amazing. The king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of the heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. I've heard how things are, the people are in a bad situation. They're being oppressed because there's no protection for them. They're being ridiculed. They're in shame because the walls lie in ruins. Um, can I go back and rebuild it? And the king's going to allow him to go back. Um, in fact, the king is not just going to allow him to go back. Um, Nehemiah is going to say, hey, can I get resources from here? Can I go to the guy who supplies the timbers for you? And can I take some of those timbers back to help rebuild the wall? And the king says, yes. And so the rest of the book is going to unfold, and it's going to unfold in, in two different parts. 
Nehemiah is going to go back, and this building project is going to be accomplished, and it's going to be accomplished quickly and amazingly, even though there's oppression. The other people around don't want the, the, the walls to be built, and even the people get frustrated at some time. But Nehemiah is going to accomplish the rebuilding of the walls. But then the real point of the book and the points of, of Ezra and Nehemiah is they're going to have to rebuild the community, and they're going to have to do that again and again in this book. So there's really two sections to the book, the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the community. That unfolds in kind of four movements. There's going to be the return. Nehemiah is going to come back with all of the stuff ready to rebuild. Then he's going to rebuild the walls, lead that project, overcome some opposition, overcome some frustration of the people. Uh, And then there's going to be this revival. Um, Ezra's going to lead this major revival, but it's not going to last. Nehemiah is going to have to go back to report to the king after 12 years in Jerusalem. He's going to go back and and report to the king. He's gone for about a year, and when he comes back, he's going to see there's all kinds of reforms that have to take place again and again. So this is the unfolding of the book. It's rebuilding the walls and then rebuilding the temple. Just like in Ezra, they rebuilt the temple, and then they had to rebuild the people. Bruce Wilkinson puts the whole thing together this way. Nehemiah, a contemporary of Ezra, and cupbearer to the king in, Pers- in the Persian palace, leads the third and last return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. His concern for the welfare of Jerusalem and its inhabitants prompts him to take bold action. Granted permission to return to his homeland, Nehemiah challenges his countrymen to arise and rebuild the shattered walls of Jerusalem. In spite of opposition from without and abuse from within, The task is completed in only 52 days, a feat which even the enemies of Israel must attribute to God's enabling. By contrast, the task of reviving and reforming the people of God within those rebuilt walls demands years of Nehemiah's godly life and leadership. Again, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, that can happen. That can get done. But isn't it true, then and now, the harder thing is our hearts, aligning our hearts with the purposes of God. Danny Hayes says this, rebuilding the people around a true worship of God is probably the true ultimate goal of both Ezra and Nehemiah. The temple and the wall are just part of the means. Um, it's easy to get the projects done sometimes. Um, we, we rebuild the church. We expand the church building. Yay, that's great. And God's in it. But that's only the means for us to make sure that our hearts are constantly aligned with God. God is faithful to do his part. The question is, will we do our part? As I'm teaching through this series, as I'm teaching through um, all these biblical books, it's not just that we're getting through the books in a building um, safe. The question is, are you going to, to take these messages that are orienting you to the story of the Old Testament, to the story of God, to the plan, to each one of the individual books? Are you going to utilize that so that in your own personal time in God's Word, you're seeing how you need to be aligning yourself with God's purposes? It's not just about getting together. It's about making personal applications. So let's look at um, our, our big questions as we're moving through this series. Um, who's writing? When is it being written? Uh, where are they writing from? And why is all of this put together? First of all, who composed Nehemiah? Well, using his own eyewitness accounts and perhaps interviews and reports from Nehemiah, the writer, and it's probably Ezra, wrote down a historical account of the return of Nehemiah and his project to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem, along with all of the opposition 
from the other countries, as well as a, a revival that was led by Ezra and his own teaching of the law, concluding with a rapid relapse of the covenant community into the old sinful patterns. In particular, the writers are part of this post-exilic community, but it tells about the building of the walls, which is a great project. But they have this revival, but the book ends with, and they're not following through. <laughs> they have to rev- restore things again. Um, when did all this happen? Well, historically, the events covered in Nehemiah take place in the middle of the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes I, beginning with Nehemiah's return in 444 and concluding in 430 after a visit back to the king. It's a 14-year period that's covered in uh, Nehemiah. The whole books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're really about 100 years long. But Nehemiah is the last 14 years of that section. Uh, Putting this together again, as we move through the Old Testament, we've seen that the storyline, that Deuteronomistic history, um, that is showing the cause and the effect. You're getting what you deserve by being sent into exile. It tells that story. And now, um, First and Second Chronicles retells that story. We're looking at a section um, here in Ezra and Nehemiah. And in particular, we want to focus on this idea that what's happened is they've been in the exile for, for 70 years. Some of them have come back. Some of them did not. Nehemiah stayed. He was in a position of authority, and so he stayed there. Esther is going to be in a position of authority, and we'll have to analyze whether they should have come back or not. We'll talk about that a lot more next week. But some people have started to come back, and as they've come back, the situation they, they find themselves in is a difficult situation because they're supposed to go back to Jerusalem where they're supposed to worship. And Ezra and Nehemiah are going to write to this community that has come back to say, listen, God has helped us build the temple. He's helped us build the walls. We need to be faithful to him. You've been given all of these resources, (laughs) but the question is, what is your heart going to be like? Again, real quickly, there's three returns, one under Zerubbabel, one under Ezra, and one under Nehemiah. They build the walls, they have a revival, they they build the temple, they have a revival, they come back and they build the walls. Um, We'll see next week that Esther takes place about halfway through the book of, uh, of, um, of Ezra. So we'll, we're going to backtrack just a little bit le- next week because we're looking at how they all got back, but then there's this one little story of not everybody came home. There are some people who stayed back in Persia. So when was all of this composed? The book of Ezra and Nehemiah was composed during this post-exilic com- uh, period after the exiles had returned from Babylon, providing them with hope and perspective for the future. They provide a record of the faithfulness of God to preserve the, so, the chosen nation by rebuilding of the temple and the wall, in spite of their continued failure to fully keep the commands of the covenant. Again, it, it's that same message that we keep hearing. God is faithful, we are not. And when we're not, our lives are difficult. And when we align ourselves with the purpose of God, it's not always easy. There may be opposition and ridicule. You may have challenges you have to face, but you're in the flow of accomplishing God's purpose and what he's doing. Where were they? The original readers were living back in the land of Israel, back in the land of Israel, but still under the rule of the Persians, wondering what their future entailed, how they should live in those new circumstances. And was there any hope for the future? Um, what's, what's going on? <laughs> Again, there are three returns, one under Zerubbabel, one under Ezra, one under Nehemiah. Um, about 20,000 people come with Zerubbabel, another 5,000 come with Ezra, and Nehemiah comes back with just a small workforce. 
Um, they are coming back from Persia. The reason uh, the map and the arrows all go high there is you can't go straight across because that's a huge desert. You couldn't have gone, gone across that desert. Um, the red line on the chart is uh, the people being taken into exile in Babylon. Zerubbabel probably comes back from Babylon, but Ezra and Nehemiah, they come back from Susa. The Persian had multiple uh, palaces. They probably had six palaces. One was in Babylon. They had another one in, in Susa. And that's where Ezra and Nehemiah are going to come back. Now, I want to kind of walk through some important highlights for the book. First of all, I want to talk about Ezra the man. Ezra came from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for, for the hand of the Lord was on him. He's a guy, and God's got his hand on him. He's using him for his purposes. Um, we highlighted that when we looked through, went through the book of Ezra. But here in Nehemiah, um, or as we look at Ezra, I want you to notice some things that are really important. Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. There are three things it says there. His heart was to study the law of the Lord, put it into practice himself, and to teach it to others. Um, I, I want to encourage you um, as... Um, our elders, and we've been working at this for about 10 years, working on a succession plan for me. Um, and um, I'm not leaving anytime soon. I'm not going to move from Conway, but we're going to uh, bring in uh, a teaching pastor who's going to overlap with, with me uh, for a period of time. We don't know how long that'll be. Um, but we're going to bring in another guy so that there's a, a seamless succession, so that fellowship can t- continue to have the DNA that it has. Let me tell you this. Here's the deal. <laughs> Look for this guy. Look for a man who's going to study the law of the Lord, and that's a passion for him. He loves God's word, and he loves to study it, but also someone who practices it. He lives it out. Um, He's willing to say, I see where I need to keep changing, and I see where I need to participate in God's purposes. Someone who's got a passion to study it, a passion to practice it, and a passion to teach it to you. That's the guy we need to be looking for. We need to be looking for an Ezra kind of guy. I like Ezra. I need to be more like Ezra. I need to be more of a guy who studies well and practices and teaches well. Let's find another Ezra, okay? Nehemiah is a guy who, as I've started to read through the book really closely, Nehemiah leaves me really conflicted. Um, He does some good things. He, He organizes a great project. They finish it. Um, I'm going to show you. He's, he's honest about his sins and his confession. He's got confidence in God. Um, but there's some other things that I, I, just, I just have questions about. That's all I'm going to leave it with. I have, I have questions. He says this, I was a cupbearer to the king. Okay? So he's a man who, who kind of, even in, this, in the world, he, he rose to levels of leadership. But at the end of Nehemiah, um, there is this really interesting um, interaction. As the people are falling back in, they, they relapse. It says this, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Don't hire that guy, okay? If you're looking for somebody, get an Ezra, not a Nehemiah. Um, but I've got questions. Is that the right response? When people are not cooperating? beat them, pull out their hair. At one point, he forces them to make a vow. 
I'm not sure that's quite the right thing. And then I have this other thing. About six times, five or six times in, in Nehemiah, you read, a, you read a phrase something like this. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. I mean, that can be a good statement, but five times in the book, just remember what I've done for these people. That's the first one that kind of made me kind of step back. Remember what I've done for these people. Really? After, after what we're seeing is God's getting it done, and you're saying, remember what I've done? But five times he calls them back. I, I, I encourage you to read Nehemiah a little more honestly. Um, I've got an article out at the Connection Center that's by Tim Mackey, who one of the scholars at the Bible Project. And Tim Mackey goes through, and he basically says, Ezra and Nehemiah are not models for leadership. Um, because you have things like this, but also the really important things that are supposed to happen aligning the people with the purposes of God, that doesn't happen very well. They have to keep doing it again and again and again. And I know the people are part of that process. But they're able to do the projects, build the temple, build the walls. But that's not the mark of a good leader. The mark of a good leader is the person who can always direct us toward the purposes of God. Always direct us, not just to feel good about our accomplishments, but direct us to fall more in love with Jesus Christ every day. One scholar, David Howard, says this, Nehemiah's self-confidence may also be illustrated by his response to men who married foreign women. He cursed them, beat them, and tore their hair. Ezra's style was more low-key. When he heard similar news, he tore his own hair. He tore out his own hair. There's a real contrast between these two guys. Um, Ezra's teaching, practicing, teaching, and I think during that whole 14-year period, Ezra keeps teaching. Nehemiah comes in, and God, he's going to rally things uh, and get things accomplished, but I'm not sure he's getting the right things accomplished. As I've said before, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah fit together. It starts off with all the people who came back with Zerubbabel, the building of the temple, uh, the return of Ezra, and then a revival that takes place, then the return of Nehemiah, another building project with the walls, and then they go back and they recount all the people who came back with Zerubbabel. It kind of, there's a, a, a chiasm there. And at the middle, the important thing is this purification of the people. If you look at just Nehemiah itself, again, there's two parts. There's the rebuilding of the walls. They return, and then they rebuild the walls. And then there's the rebuilding of the community. There's a revival, but it doesn't last. Um, Nehemiah goes back to the capital. He's gone for a year, and when he comes back, nobody's doing anything they said. So the whole book fits together Rebuilding the walls, that's the project, and rebuilding the community, that's the point. God's faithful with the projects. The question is, will our hearts align? Nehemiah does have confidence. When he is, um, when he is about ready to approach the king, here's his prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you uh, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. God, I know you're faithful. I know you're going to listen. That's his confidence. And then listen to his confession. I, there are some things I really like about Nehemiah. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, laws you gave your servant Moses. You know, isn't it easy just to kind of confess, oh yeah, the church isn't what it's supposed to be. God's people aren't living like they should. Um, boy, our country is falling apart. The wheels are coming off. 
But what about us? Do we ever get down to this, I confess my sins, where I'm falling short, where my family, my circle of influence, we're, we're not aligned to the purposes of God. I really like that in Nehemiah. I like his confidence. I like his confession. When he gets back, he's going to overcome a lot of opposition. The opposition starts off uh, with just ridicule. As they start to build the walls, they build it about halfway up. And and while they're doing that, um, this guy named Tobiah, there's a couple of of guys who who are part of the opposition. But Tobiah the Ammonite, who was um, at this other guy's side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing on it, would break down the walls of stone. I mean, do you, do you hear the, the, what he's saying there? <laughs> Your puny little project. You think that's going to stand? If a fox jumped up there, it would knock it down. You guys aren't building a great project. And, and we Ammonites, we're just waiting. All we have to do, you know, we just have to come over and push your wall over. There's no way you're going to succeed. They eventually don't just ridicule them. They eventually say, if you keep building, we're going to attack. And I love this, this verse. As I was reading through, I really got captivated by chapter 3 and chapter 9. They're great chapters. Read chapter 3 and chapter 9. Um, one guy, Shulam, son of Herosheth, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Folks, there's a role for everybody. When the project is going on, jump in. You know, I, there's some of you who probably are like, I don't want to teach in that Christian school. You know, it's behind the hotel. That's for softies. Give me a shovel. I want to go to the work project. Come on. We'll take you to Nicaragua. We'll do it with the help of our daughters. There's another section in here. I love it. Um, a wealthy man um, is put on the wall to kind of help build uh, a section of the wall. He gets frustrated and he goes home. But all of his servants, they stay and they finish that section and another section. I love the story that's going on here. I, um, I, I love this when I came across it in chapter 3. Um, Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of half district of Benzor, made repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. I like that. <laughs> Man, there's, you know, here's, here's where David was born. Here's this pool we dug, and then the house of the heroes, you know. This is the Israel Hall of Fame. That's where they were. Um, I came across this phrase, and it just, I, I, I started highlighting it in chapter 3 as well. Um, Miramoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshabael, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banana, no, Bana, um, also made repairs. Thirteen times it says next to him, next to him, next to him. These guys were working together because there's a section, next to him another one, next to them another one, next to them another one. I love that. All of them are working together, hand in hand, next to one another to get all of these projects done. Um, And the walls got completed. Ridicule, opposition, working together. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Yule. This is springtime, uh, or or fall. Winter, spring, now fall, and it's done. The project is done in 52 days. And they recognize that it's God who did it. When all of our enemies heard about this, building the wall in 52 days, All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. They finished the project, and it was God who was behind it. While Jerusalem's walls had been rebuilt with the help of God in 52 days, 
Given it a measure of physical security, the future success of the post-exilic community depended on its willingness to obey God's law in civil and worship matters. It needed to preserve its ethnic identity and the integrity of its temple worship. Again, the projects were done. Temple built, walls built. The question is, are you going to obey the law of the Lord? And the law of the Lord becomes central. Um, as they are uh, rummaging around and they're rebuilding, and, and Ezra's been teaching for about 14 years, at some point Ezra gets to the book of Exodus, he's reading through Exodus, and he reads this, Then Moses commanded them, this is in Leviticus as well, At the end of every seven years, in the year of counseling, counseling gets, we know that, the year of Jubilee, during the festival of tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Three festivals for the Jews. In the spring, Passover, in the middle of the summer, um, Pentecost, and then in the fall, there is the festival of booze or the festival of tabernacles. It's the Feast of Trumpets is, is what it's called as well. It's a fall festival. It comes to be the fall. He's reading, hey, I'm supposed to read the book of the law. And so that's exactly what they do. They're going to teach the law and they're going to explain it in small groups. In, Ezra, in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And he opened it. The people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. By the way, he read for about a day and a half, so give me a break. Um, The Levites, after he reads, the Levites, and it lists all their names, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so the people understood what was being read. Again, this is a great passage. They read it, and in small groups they explained it so everybody could understand what was going on so that they could apply it to their lives. This is the model of what a church should do. (laughs) Proclaim the Word of God, and then in smaller groups, make sure you're living it out. That's what we're trying to do. Danny Hayes says this, Both the leaders and the people pledge to be faithful to God. At this revival, when they're reading the law and the Levites are explaining it in small groups, Both the leaders and the people pledge to be faithful to God and to keep his law. They mention three specific areas in which they will be obedient. They won't intermarry with pagans, they will keep the Sabbath, and they will support the temple financially. This is an ominous pledge, for all three of these promises will be broken in Nehemiah 13. They pledge very carefully, we will do these things. And then, one year later, they've fallen back and they're violating all of them. Nehemiah, is he a great leader? I'm not sure. (laughs) I rebuked them, called down curses on them. I beat some of the men, pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. And I said, made them take an oath in God's name. I said, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. That's the right thing. But beating people, pulling their hair out, forcing them to make these pledges. I'm not sure that's not why um, it doesn't last very long. Danny Hiss says this, the reality that rebuilding the nation is perhaps more difficult than rebuilding the wall or the temple. Both Ezra and Nehemiah struggle with this, rebuilding the nation, the community, their hearts. And as the book of Nehemiah ends, the jury is still out on whether the, prop, the, the people are going to remain faithful to God without Nehemiah standing right over them watching. This is the end of the historical section. In Esther, we're going to take a step back chronologically. If you'll remember, Haggai and Zechariah, they prophesy during the time of Zerubbabel when they're building the temple. There's only one prophet left, Malachi. And you know what Malachi's message is? You guys have hearts of stone. You're just going through the motions. That takes place after all of this, about 
we don't know exactly, maybe 10 years later is when Malachi is going, you still don't get it. So what's the message? The authors, likely Nehemiah and Ezra, recorded the third return under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that the law could be kept in safety, stressing the faithfulness of God to his people, even though they had been unfaithful throughout their history. By the way, that's chapter 9. I, 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 in your home churches, I'm asking you to read all of chapter 9. It's a long chapter, but chap, Nehemiah chapter 9 is the history, of the, Old Test, the history of the nation of Israel in one chapter. If you want to know, okay, what happened? It's Nehemiah chapter 9, because that's what they do. They read the law, and they say, look, God's been faithful, and we have not been. Even though they had been unfaithful throughout their history, and even, and even in the third return, like it happens for them, but they write all of this so that the remnant would be faithful to the covenant and would trust God to protect and forgive them as he had promised as part of his covenant plan. Bob Chisholm says it this way, The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell of a revived covenant community created by the Lord's providential intervention and sustained by his compassion and good favor. The Lord moved the mighty Persian rulers to support the efforts of the returning exiles, and he protected his people from the hostile enemies. God's doing his part. <laughs> Will the people do their part? Will their hearts be realigned? So what? We've got a historical story. The Old Testament narrative comes to an end. And it comes to an end with a chapter where the people have broken all of their pledges. There's a message here for us, folks. Our hearts are constantly need, needing to be realigned. God will be faithful to do his part. We need to be faithful to do ours. So where does all this fit? It's a continuation of the story of God's faithfulness during his people's failure. That's what we keep seeing again and again. It's a narrative that acknowledges the reality of opposition to God's work and plan for our lives. It's not always going to be easy. You may be ridiculed. There may be opposition. There may be threats if you continue to work, walk with the Lord. It's an example of the central place of timely confession and acknowledgement of sin. Nehemiah does it personally. The people do it regularly. And it's a cautionary tale about supposed good leaders and the limits of the best ones. Um, folks, our eyes are not to be put on these leaders. That's the problem. If we make Ezra and Nehemiah the model, then we miss the fact that it's all pointing to Christ. Tim Mackey says it this way. And this is the purpose of Ezra and Nehemiah in the overarching story of the Bible. The story shows that the return of many Israelites to Jerusalem was only one step toward the fulfillment of the prophetic hope of the new covenant and the kingdom of God. The full realization of that hope come, uh, came only when God himself entered personally into Israel's story in the person of, the, of, our, of their Messiah and King. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, through the gift of the Spirit, the story took a quantum leap forward. You'll get to that part of the biblical story soon enough. It's months down the road, but we're going to get there. My point here is all of this is pointing that way. So what, we should, what should we believe? Here's, here's the things I think we need to believe out of this. If God is in it, it's going to happen. If God wills for the walls to be built, it's going to be built, even maybe in 52 days. In spite of opposition, and maybe sometimes with the help of some unexpected kings like Artaxerxes. Prayer is a priority in the middle of all of this going on. Confession, real heartfelt confession, is normal in the Christian life. It's not a once-and-done thing. And our only hope is Jesus, not a building or a wall, or even good or not-so-good leaders. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ, not a building, not a wall, not leaders. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. So how should we behave? Pray more. <laughs> Confess often and deeply. And trust God in the midst of opposition from within and without. 
some next steps as we bring this to an end. Remember that even if God is in your calling or task, it may not be easy or simple. Even if God's calling you to it, that doesn't mean it's always going to be easy or simple. There may be opposition, there may be ridicule. Trust God, work hard, then trust God some more. That's how you have to live your life. I'm going to trust God for this. He's going to provide. Then you got to work hard. And then you have to trust him again. And keep your eyes on Jesus, not your safety, walls, or your church, a temple, or even church leaders, Ezra, Nehemiah, me, the staff, the elders. Don't put your eyes on us. Don't put your eyes on the new guy who's coming in. Don't put your eyes on your favorite TV preacher or your favorite podcast guy. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. God will be faithful. We're not. We need to admit it, confess it. And then we need to align ourselves with his purposes again and again and again. Father, thank you for the relentless pursuit of us. Your relentless um, grace and faithfulness. Father, unfortunately, we are relentlessly pursuing our own agendas. Help us to admit it, confess it, turn from it, and pursue you with all of our heart that we would be involved in the projects that you want us to be involved in, but most importantly, that we would be regularly aligning our hearts with how you want us to live in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our church. May our hearts be yours. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.